Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. Uh, SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing in lieu of our in-person conference uh, that do deep dives into topics that we think are relevant to the investment management community and our, our global community. Uh, so today, we're, we're very excited to dive into a topic that's especially relevant given what's going on with the global pandemic. Um, with Alex Denner, who is the uh, that focuses on read a little bit more about Alex's bio. Uh, he is a PhD as well as the founder and CIO of Sarissa, as I mentioned. Uh, he's been investing in healthcare companies for the past two decades. Um, in, and in 2013, he founded Sarissa to capitalize on the compelling opportunities for positive shareholder activism created by the unique dynamics of the healthcare sector. Uh, Dr. Denner has led Sarissa's involvement in some of Biopharma's most successful strategic transactions and activist campaigns. Prior to founding Sarissa, he was the healthcare portfolio manager for Icon Capital. And at Icon, he developed Icon's activist strategy in the healthcare sector and was responsible for some of the firm's most successful investments. Uh, prior to joining Icon, he was a healthcare portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley, as well as at Viking Global. Today, uh, Alex serves on the board of Biogen as a director, and he's the chairman of the medicines company. He received his bachelor's degree from MIT and his master's and PhD degrees from Yale University. If you have any questions for Dr. Dinner on today's chat, please use the Q&A box at the bottom of your uh, video screen. And I'm going to turn it over uh, to host the interview to Anthony Scaramucci, who is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, as well as the uh, chairman of SALT. So Anthony, you go ahead and take it away. Uh, I, I appreciate it, John. Alex, it's, uh, it's great to be with you. You got a, a fascinating story. Uh, John's bio of you is great, but I want to hear more. Tell us more about your background. Tell us how you got to where you are, uh, because I want people to understand the significance of your credentials before I start asking these questions. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for uh, having me uh, speak with you. So, uh, yeah, my background, basically, I, I have a, uh, my academic background is in essentially biomedical engineering. And, you know, from there, I went to, uh, to, to Morgan Stanley, I had always been interested in investing. And, you know, basically, we uh, became also interested in activism, the idea that, that for many companies, they were, they're not well managed, the, there are a lot of principal agent issues and the companies um, are often run more for the management teams than, than, than the companies themselves. And there's a very interesting intersection there between healthcare and activism. And I, so having a background in, in biomedical engineering, I had a thesis on identifying people as susceptible to uh, certain types of ventricular arrhythmias, certain types of heart attacks. Um, you know, basically we, we approached the, the situation with the, with the, uh, the philosophy that um, in healthcare companies are um, very, because they have very high margins and very high barriers to entry, the, um, the opportunity for the, 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 the opportunity for a company to sort of be undermanaged and still kind of get away with it, if you will, is higher. Um, so, you know, I, I actually approached, um, Carl Icahn with this kind of philosophy and we sort of, you know, started doing investing in that. And I've been, you know, involved in, in, in a whole bunch of transactions in, 
in investments in, in, in the healthcare uh, industry over time. Uh, and really what we do is we get in and we, we try to fix companies that so we've been involved in, as John has said, Biogen, you know, medicines company, Ariad, Imclone, Genzyme, Metamune, there's a whole bunch of uh, companies that we've, we've been involved with and, and really tried to make better and often through that process end up in an M&A uh, situation. So you're, you're, but you, you know a lot about science and you know a lot about research into vaccines and you know a lot about yeah. this disease that the entire world is now struggling with. And so I want to go right there and tell us a little bit about your opinion of the various organizations that are working on a vaccine and working on therapies to help people that have COVID-19. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I think there are, there, are, there are approximately 160 people out there working on vaccines and, you know, countless, you know, more than a thousand sort of efforts that are uh, on, on therapies. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's at this point, vaccines are a very hard business, right? And I think we should sort of take a step back in terms of thinking about it from a, from a, from a societal point of view. It's very hard to develop vaccines, and there are there are viruses for which um, we haven't, uh, you know, HIV being a classic example. That you know people have been working on for decades, and we don't have vaccines that work. And there are also viruses, uh, dengue fever being you know probably the the, the sort of most uh, highest profile example where uh, vaccines have been developed that can actually make the virus the the an infection, a subsequent infection from the disease worse. So a person can be vaccinated in certain circumstances get worse because they had been uh, vaccinated when they get an infection of, of dengue. So, those, so this, the development is very complicated and we have to sort of look at, um, you know, the, look, at it, look at things in that, in, in that light. I am optimistic that we're going to have a vaccine uh, relatively soon. In fact, I, I think we'll have a number of them uh, there's a bunch of different technologies that are, people are working on. You know, the ones that are sort of the highest profile, and certainly in the U.S. are probably the mRNA vaccines, where Moderna is the is is kind of the leader there. Pfizer is also, you know, has a bunch of candidates. Um, there's no vac. There's that particular technology has never been successfully implemented in a in an approved vaccine. On the other hand, the data that has come out so far has has been very promising. And uh, you know, one of the most exciting parts about, about that approach is that it's relatively quick. You can design the, the molecule that you know, could, could produce the immune response and, and, and test it quickly and also scale it quickly. So, to the, so if, it, if, if, the, if one of these uh, you know, RNA or DNA vaccines works, it's pretty easy to make, you know, uh, relatively easy to make hundreds of millions or billions uh, of doses. The, the sort of more traditional tech, technologies of using vaccines where the virus has been, like the actual virus, it's a killed version of the virus, or, or a more sophisticated technology called a live attenuated vaccine, where you basically take the virus and don't kill it, but, but, um, but uh, you know, damage it in a way that it can't cause a serious infection. Those types of vaccines generally have very good immune responses, like our bodies react well to them and, and create robust uh, responses. 
but the timelines to develop them are much are much longer. Um, so you know, it's, it, it's sort so of so. Alex, hard. what what time frame are we talking about though? When you say relatively early, when when do you think we'll we'll see the vaccine? So uh, you know, there's a lot of people working on them, and you know, I think that given the data that's come out, you know, heretofore, I think it is possible that we'll have uh, you know multiple. Uh, vaccines that are showing efficacy, you know, this year. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they're going, I don't think there'll be a widely available vaccine this year. Um, and, you know, I think that it'll take some time to sort of scale it up. You know, uh, Moderna has been, has been highlighting that they think that at the beginning of the year, they may be able to scale, uh, you know, to a large number of doses to treat, you know, a significant percentage of the U.S. population but they might be able to treat sort of high risk people earlier than that. Uh, there are many uh, risks to that though. And I think that it's not, uh, you know, uh, I'm more hopeful than I was two or three months ago in terms of a vaccine being developed in the next few months. But I think it's important to note that we may not have a vaccine at all for the next couple of years. You know, that is possible. Um, and, you know, we have to think about kind of how, that, how society will adapt if, if that is the case. But you're optimistic. And, and, and just one more question on this, because I think our audience is actually interested in this stuff. What can we learn from the prior pandemics? The Spanish flu pandemic, as an example, no vaccine, yet the society did go on to progress and we created the Roaring Twenties shortly after that pandemic ended. So, so what can we learn from that? Exactly. No, that's a very interesting area. Look, uh, you know, there have been many pandemics in history, as you know, and it's, you know, the, in the Bible, they're mentioned the plagues and, you know, the smallpox and cholera and the, the, the Black Death in Europe. And these things have, have occurred many, many times. And there are many, you know, kind of historical lessons that we can learn. They generally, uh, you know, without mitigation, you know, kind of most uh, viral pandemics last a few months and they have a few waves. So, think of a few months long wave and there's usually maybe three waves. And, uh, you know, the, in this case, we have, uh, as, as, a, as a, the this is the first time the whole world has really coordinated to, to do social distancing to slow down the vaccine. So it'll change the dynamic somewhat. But I think we can sort of look to history and say, well, you know, this, is, this has happened many times before. We've got through that. Um, the, the, the um, Almost all respiratory viruses are, have a seasonal component. So I think that's an important part here that although we're seeing like in Texas and Florida an increase in the number of cases, and that's very troubling. I think that's something that we should all be focused on. Uh, it's, it's, I, I do expect, I think the sort of the best guess is that there'll be a reacceleration of viral infections in the fall. That just sort of most viruses, behave, most respiratory viruses behave that way. Uh, and that has to, that occurred with the Spanish influenza that occurred with you know kind of a, lots of influenza uh, pandemics. Um, as from a societal point of view, like in the U.S., we're learning a lot about how to manage these, the disease medically. Like you know, we just saw the recent news on dexamethasone being used, and basically you know kind of in in the later stage of the disease, it helps, which is uh, very important to know. But, but let's and, explain how it helps. So, so what's happening is you're getting an overreaction from your immune system, right? And it, it's flooding your cells in a way that's 
causing a breakdown. And so it's an immunosuppressant drug to knock that down. Is that a fair characterization? That, that, that's exactly correct. So the, the, you know, the, we, the virus has an, has an, this virus has an acute phase that, um, you know, typically, you know, kind of lasts, say, you know, a week or two. And uh, most people clear the virus. Some people don't, uh, the ones who get more severe disease, and they tend to have an overreaction of their immune system. And you know, steroids can be used to dampen that down. Also, uh, tocilizumab is also used used in that regard. That, that's it's important that, that we understand that steroids can actually, if reduce our body's ability to fight an infection. So you generally don't want to give them early in the stage of an infection. But when someone's in that 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 state where their their body is overreacting to the infection, the story the uh, steroids can be very useful. And that's an example of one of the things that we're learning, you know, kind of as the world gets experienced with this in terms of ma medical management, you know, managing people who have severe disease. And I think, you know, even in the absence of a vaccine and in the absence of any new therapies, and I do think we'll have things beyond remdesivir, uh, in the absence of those, uh, you know, the doctors will better understand how to manage patients and in, 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 in improve outcomes. And one of the things that's interesting is, is that the disease appears to be a disease of endothelial dysfunction. So it's a, it's a disease related to clotting of the blood. It's not, it's not just a lung infection. It's doing other things systemically. And I think, I think that, uh, that the recognition of that is becoming sort of, um, you know, people that's that's generally uh, believed to be the, the most people would say that's generally what probably what the virus is is and that uh medical management of that you know re like reducing oxidative stress that type of thing can help improve outcomes so i'm going to ask you three questions in rapid fire succession and so you can give me a, a yes or no your opinion of course uh covid19 is it worse than the flu Yes. Uh, the mortality rate is worse than the flu. Yes. Uh, should, at this stage in the pandemic, would you take your kids out to a restaurant? Uh, I think a qualified, probably a qualified yes to that, but I think you have to do that very carefully. I actually went to a restaurant today. It's the first time I've done that. It was a restaurant by the by the sea you know we were we were 10 feet did, away did, from everyone Alex, else did you have a martini or something hopefully yeah what did you drink at the restaurant <laughs> don't tell me iced tea i'm going to cut the yeah, yeah. i'm going to cut the uh, that, internet that, unfortunately that is what we had is iced tea, yeah, iced but, tea. Uh, all right you know i think that you know during the daytime when there's you know kind of a breeze if you will when there's sort of a you know people are not close together i think it's very important to who you're having, uh, choosing to have a meal with if you go to a restaurant, it's a very important thing, right? If you, if you, if you, if you, if, if, if so I go you were, with my you family. So you were out, let me just stipulate for everybody, you were outdoors, you were eating al fresco. I was, I was outdoors and, you know, 12 to 10, 10 to 15 feet away from anyone else. Um, and look, I think that, we, you know, that was a calculated risk doing that. That's, um, I don't think we should be doing that a lot. I do think that um, in, in the, like I live in Connecticut, in this area, the virus was very bad a, a few months ago. It was horrible. It was really, really bad. And it's come down a lot. 
And so I think it depends a lot on where you are geographically too. Um, but the, during the summer, I think it's important to kind of get out a little bit and not to- What about flying an airplane, Alex? Would you, would you, would you fly in an airplane? Uh, no. Okay, no, tell I, us why not. I think that the, um, look, I, obviously the, the, there's always a risk benefit analysis with that. And sometimes if you need to, to fly for some important reason, what, I, I would do it, I guess. But um, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, an airplane, the whole process of, 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 of commercial airline flight is very, uh, you know, has lots of opportunities for introducing infections. So the actual being on the plane, you're in a, in a, in a, in a, in a enclosed can, uh, sitting next to people who you don't, you know, don't have any idea of sort of their viral status for an extended period of time. You're touching lots of things. You're inter, inter, interfacing with lots of people. You got to go through an airport to get to the plane. You got to go through security. You got to go go to the gate. And when you get out of the when you get out of the plane, you got to go through an airport. You have to think about transportation to wherever you're going. Um, you know, th those types of things are, uh, you know, for me, I, I I don't plan on going on a on a sort of you know commercial flight for a vacation kind of purpose uh, in the near term. There are people that think if you've gotten the disease and you have the antibodies, you can still get the disease. So can you still get the disease after you've gotten the disease? And what's the difference between synthetic and natural antibodies? So uh, once a person has, the vex, uh, has had the disease, it's very unlikely that they can get it again. I mean, it, almost, almost impossible. I don't want to say impossible because there, there can be, uh, it's, it's, it would be very, very hard for a period of time. I think what, what, what the question that we don't really know is how long does immunity last for this, um, this particular infection? When somebody gets a chicken pox, they get essentially lifelong immunity to, to, the, to that, the, that uh, virus. In the case of coronaviruses, the immunity that most people get lasts, you know, kind of months or a short number of years. So I think that, you know, again, we don't know, but based on sort of an educated guess on similar viruses, it's, it's probably the case that a person can get reinfected in a year and a half, but, but not, in, not two months later. Um, with respect to antibodies, so, you know, our bodies, um, when, when, you know, when a person gets infected, there's a bunch of, our immune system kind of kicks in and there's a whole bunch of things that happen. Uh, and you know, one of the things that happen is that, that there's a part of the body that makes antibodies, which are, which are substances that go and find things that look like the virus and latch onto it and essentially kill it. Um, and those, uh, that's what, once we've had the infection and our body has created the antibodies, the virus usually goes away or almost all of it goes away very quickly. You can take, so, so somebody that's had the virus and then, um, uh, and then recovered will have antibodies in their blood. So you can do so, so-called convalescent plasma where you take the blood out of a person who has recovered from the infection, um, uh, you know, uh, isolate the antibodies, the plasma in the blood, and then inject that into a person who's suffering from an acute infection. That usually helps people. There are, you know, it's not, it's not 100% clear that, that, that that's uh, efficacious, but it's very, very likely that that be efficacious. Then the next step is, let's make those, those antibodies synthetically. So what I just described is taking an antibody from somebody that had an infection, 
it's obviously kind of hard to scale and there's a lot of complication with that. It'd be great if you can design the antibody and manufacture it scale and give it to people so they would have, it's kind of like a, like a mini vaccine in, in, in a way. Um, that is a very exciting approach. I think that the, I think the technical probability of that working is quite high. There's a bunch of companies working on that. I'm involved with a company on the board of a company that has a, has a role in that. Probably the leader is Regeneron. Um, you know, they have a, they, they, they've been working really hard and have some very exciting uh, uh, ideas and they're pursuing that very quickly. That's not something that can be, making the antibodies is, 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 is a complex process. So it's not something that can be scaled to sort of giving, giving them to everybody in the world. But you know, when when we have data that those that those that the, the synthetically created antibodies work, they probably would work prophylactically and therapeutically. So in other words, they would probably work to prevent an infection if you gave it to a person who was at high risk for an infection, as well as if you gave it to a person in the early stage of infection, it, it probably would make the the disease go away uh, more quickly. So so you know, in listening to you speak about this and. Uh, obviously, we, we know a, a lot about you and your firm. You're cautiously, can I frame it this way? You're cautiously optimistic about a therapy and a vaccine, and let's call it over the next year. Th those yes. things will unfold. Yes, I, so, I believe even, even more than, over, hopefully sooner than that even. Okay, so, so in your mind, you've been an investor for your whole career. So what does that mean for the U.S. economy? What does that mean for the stock market? And what does that mean for the industries and the sectors that you're involved? Okay, so, you know, in terms of the, 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 the societal and the investing impacts, I mean, I think, first of all, we have to think of all the different possibilities, right? So it is possible that we have no vaccine for five years, right? That's, it's important for, as, as an investor, to sort of have that in the, in the, in the frame of, of if, if that if that happens, Alex, I'm going to stick half of my Skybridge employees in that beautiful office of yours. Okay, we're going <laughs> to we're going to be living rent free in your house. Okay, there you go. You're yeah, absolutely welcome. Keep, to keep there. going. Uh, so the uh, that you know that said, I do think it's very likely we'll we'll, we'll kind of have uh, have some some therapies. Economic recovery is all about confidence, right? So it's. It's, it, I think it's less about the sort of the technical level of, of, of virus protection in the population, whether it's 69 or 73%, or, or but uh, it, it's people feeling confident that if they go out, they have a low chance of, of getting a serious, uh, serious disease from doing that. And that can come from a vaccine, you know, that can come from sort of better uh, treatment so that the disease much more rarely becomes serious. Um, I do think that that will occur, you know, kind of with sort of a relatively soon, you know, certainly not this year, but kind of probably the beginning of next year. And I think that that will allow, you know, kind of us to get back to sort of a, a, a something quasi normal. Uh, I, I, you know, there are industries like, um, you know, that are very, restaurants and things will probably take longer to kind of get back to full normal. Um, and there are industries that, you know, where work from home is working well, that pr probably will be, you know, that are unaffected now or, you know, relatively uh, affected very there. So, so, you know, I don't, 
you don't have to give specific stocks, but just give us generically the sectors that you're the most bullish on. And if you want to give specific stocks or even are allowed to, I don't know what the regulations are around your firm, but where, where are you? What are you long? What do you like? Uh, what, what, what don't you like? So we invest in healthcare stocks. Um, uh, you know, to, I think one of the most, uh, so one of the things that's gone on here is that in healthcare, appropriately, everyone is focused on the coronavirus. So that, you know, the, the companies that are working on that are sort of at the, at the highlight of everybody's thinking. And in, in fact, when you look at sort of the healthcare index performance, um, it's, been, it's been largely driven by a few names that, that have benefited. You know, the, the stocks have gone up a lot because they, may, uh, they, they offer promise to sort of have a vaccine or a treatment for the, for the, um, uh, for the coronavirus. Um, as, as a healthcare investor, I think that you know, there are promising investments there and we, we're pursuing them. But, you know, I think the bigger opportunity is actually in, in the sort of non-coronavirus related healthcare uh, therapeutic side. Th those companies are being um, not ignored, but they're getting less attention than, than they normally would. Um, cancer is still, unfortunately, just as serious a disease as it was six months ago. Heart disease is still, unfortunately, just as, as serious. Um, and the, um, you know, there have been changes in the industry, like the FDA has had to adapt very rapidly to the coronavirus and regulations that, you know, were, 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 were well-intentioned, but were really, you know, kind of slowing the industry down, have been bulldozed away. You know, kind of one of the best examples of that is in the telehealth area, where, you know, um, before, you know, six months ago, very few people used, uh, talked to their physicians over, over the internet. Uh, it was done, but it was, a, it was a very small part of the, the, the healthcare ecosystem and, and the government didn't pay for it by and large, and it was very difficult. Um, that has changed completely now, as everyone knows. And I think that that frankly is good for everyone, that the you know, society will be better off uh, you know, having that, 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 that trend having accelerated. There are many, many regulations in healthcare that have been disintermediated by this coronavirus. And basically, you know, the, whether it's CMS or, the, or HHS or, or the FDA have issued emergency guidance, it's a technical matter is, is uh, limited to the, the time during the coronavirus emergency. But I think we've permanently changed how we, we, we do uh, you know, drug development and, but, but and, and deliver change, But in your mind, better, right? I mean, a, less, a, a little a bit less. You know, we, we both know the thalidomide story from the 50s, which really stunted the FDA. And, and for those people that are so young that they don't know that story, they, they block that drug. It was a uh, morning sickness drug. They blocked it in the U.S. They allowed it in Europe. Uh, the side effects of it was it caused uh, limb deformities. And so the FDA celebrated that, that they slowed it down, and that made it a lot harder to get drugs through as a result of things like thalidomide. So, so you're saying they've opened this up a little bit, but we also know that they have more scientific data now than they did in the 1950s, and they're able to do broader testing. Uh, so that whole process makes those drugs safer. Would that be safe to say? Yes, I think that, you know, look, the Thalidomide is, 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 a, is, a, is a great example to bring up. I mean, uh, 
the FDA has a very important role to play in, in, in evaluating drugs. And you know, they, they're gonna demand, and rightfully, they're gonna continue to demand safety data, especially in the, in the tragedy of thalidomide, where you know, a, a, drug, a morning sickness drug actually caused birth defects, right? Um, that kind of thing will still, it will still be done and, and should be done. Uh, but, you know, allowing, um, you know, some of, like, t using, using technology in clinical trials, um, you know, not all things have to be done in person, you know, that just many of the sort of bureaucratic rules that have existed because they were, there was no other way to do them when they were implemented have been swept away. And I think, frankly, it's going to accelerate drug development. It's going to, and it's going to accelerate the the, the value that, that, that the healthcare system delivers. We all know the healthcare system, I think the, the drug development system in the US is fantastic and works really well. The, the healthcare delivery system doesn't. I don't think anyone thinks that that's, you know, kind of extremely well functioning. Uh, and I think we're gonna come out of this with a better healthcare system. I think that, you know, many of the sort of, uh, you know, kind of uh, lots of, you know, the. The lots of regular overregulation and, and the uh, the sort of balkanization of the healthcare system. People have been forced to work together because of the coronavirus, and it works better. And they're gonna we're gonna end when we get when we get past this. The healthcare delivery, I think, will be better for it. I mean, you know, the the whole experience of going to a hospital will be easier for patients. Will be better for the healthcare providers. Doctors will be better able to treat patients. It, I think it's it's really going to be a it's that there's a silver lining in all of this. Well, I, you know, and I think that's an important segue, Alex, because, you know, in the crisis, a lot of opportunity gets born. In the 2008 crisis, we actually started the SALT conference as a response to that crisis. And so uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic, as you are, that things will change for the better. I want to turn it over to our, our viewers and listeners. Uh, John Darcy, uh, is going to ask you some questions uh, that are coming in over the transom here. And we've got a ton of uh, audience participation. So go ahead, John. Yeah, the first question uh, relates to your process as an activist in the healthcare space. When you're identifying potential targets uh, for, for an activist campaign, how do you dive into that business and differentiate in terms of uh, measuring why their performance suffered? How do you differentiate between a company that was mismanaged, actually has good drugs, but was just fundamentally mismanaged, and between companies that either have drugs that are flawed and aren't performing well because of the quality of the drug? Okay, so that's a good question. Uh, we do a lot of work, uh, you know, on on that. Basically, it's it's just it's gumshoe research, right? I think that. Um, you know, we, we we have a very uh, we have a, we have a great team. Um, you know, MDs, PhDs, you know, people that are, that are really expert in healthcare, and we we uh, dig deep into sort of into the pipelines and the in the in the currently marketed products of each of the investments that we make. Um, what we look for, we basically our, our process is basically we we look at companies and we and we we sort of look at the, we 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 say okay, we know the products, the pipeline, the technologies that they have. And then we, uh, we, we, because we, we have a lot of experience in the space, we know the space very well, we can sort of put a cost structure around that. So we can sort of say, okay, if the company has three drugs in certain therapeutic areas, we know how much it will do, take to sell those drugs. And um, to first order, we don't take, a, take account of what the companies, whether they have 
you know, what their cost structure looks like. We just sort of build what it should be in our model and we DCF that. And we look at that, uh, that DCF compared to the market price. When there's a huge difference, like 2X, we sort of get, we get interested. And then we say, if, if there's a way that we can put leverage on the company, can we, um, can we push the company to, to change their strategy such that it's better run for investors, the, the owners, then we'll get involved. And we typically will take a position and typically seek to join the board. And you know, kind of often that, that involves a management change, although not always. Um, and when we, in doing that analysis, we really look for products because it's a long-term strategy that we get involved in the company and we're, we're investing, we plan to be investors for, for years, uh, that we look for things that are innovative, that are uh, that truly add to, that, that have, tr uh, that, that benefit patients, uh, that ameliorate a disease in, in, in a real way. Um, and those kinds of, those are the types of uh, companies we get involved with. We're less in, interested in a company that has a me too thing that's just sort of maybe slightly uh, better than somebody else um, because we need to have a very big difference between the value when the company is run properly compared, you know, in, in the current market price. Um, the, the other thing to note is that, you know, people uh, in the, in the sector, we, we interface with a lot of uh, investors and we get a lot of feedback. So, you know, a lot of institutional shareholders will call us and we may hear from, uh, you know, our five or six institutional shareholders over the course of whatever, you know, some a year or whatever, you know, that, that they're unhappy with the way a particular company is being run, you know, and that, that's usually not something that, that, that's news to us, but, but it helps us understand the, the psychology of the shareholder base, that they're, that they're ready to sort of implement change, that they're ready to sort of, you know, kind of push the company to be run better. Thanks for that, Alex. The next question is about the telehealth space. What's your general view on telehealth and do you have any favorite names in the space? So I, I, I don't, I, I like telehealth a lot, as I mentioned earlier. I think that it's, it's, be, it's gonna become a bigger part of healthcare. Um, I don't have any particular favorite names. Um, I think that one should think about telehealth as the specific part that is the, is the visible part where the, where the patient interacts with the physician but uh, also there's a lot of kind of things that can be done um, with, you know, even clinical trial work where you can, you can, you can do remote uh, monitoring of patients. Uh, the types of things like, like we were talking earlier, the FDA is traditional, you know, the FDA has been very forward thinking in many things, but it's been, it's taken some time to get to, uh, uh, you know, kind of, um, incorporate some, some of these technologies. And I think by necessity, if a company is developing a drug where they can't, uh, they, you know, they, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to sort of have a patient come in every month to, to the doctor, the solution may be sort of a, 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 a tele-solution. Um, so I think it's gonna be a very, it's a, it's a very important part of healthcare now. It's gonna become more important over time and it's gonna make the system more efficient. Thank you for that, Alex. Uh, the next question is, you talked a little bit about a timeline for a vaccine. 
what would you put in terms of your degree of confidence in percentage terms of a vaccine coming out before the end of 2020? So uh, let uh, first of all let's let's define what this means. I think if there's a I think to have a have data that shows that one or more vaccines have some level of efficacy. Let's say you know they reduce severity of the disease in, in, in a large fraction of patients or, the, or they, maybe they provide sterilizing immunity in, in 50% or, or 70% of patients. I, I would say that the probability of that occurring by the end of the year is more than 50%. Um, I would have said less than, I, I would have been a much lower number uh, three months ago or two months ago but I think we've seen some data that's been published that has been very exciting, you know, from a number of different groups. Now, that's a, there's, a, there's a different question, though, which is when is a vaccine going to be broadly available, say, to Americans or, you know, globally around the world? And, and, and I think that is a, that's something that's uh, unlikely to occur, a broad availability of vaccines, unlikely to occur this calendar year. And sort of if everything goes right, you know, in, in the U.S., we may have access to that. It's sort of, it, it, you know, say, say in the first quarter of next year, uh, but that sort of requires everything kind of going right. So I would say that there's maybe to to have to have a, a, a vaccine widely available, um, uh, you know, a 50% chance of it widely available probably would be by the first quarter of next year, at 50%, and and I would say 75% by the end of next year. Thank you. Uh, in terms of geographically, do you focus on U.S.-based companies, or what do you view as the opportunity within healthcare in emerging markets like India and China? So we we look at all companies around the world. Uh, you know, uh, we're we do everything in healthcare. That said, we sort of focus on therapeutics. Uh, and a lot of the innovation in, in, in therapeutics is happening in the U.S. So we tend to be sort of uh, U.S. focused. There's a lot of opportunity in the U.S. for but what we do, uh, healthcare companies, uh, it's really hard to develop drugs, but when they, when, when they do it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very high barrier to entry, very high margin business generally, and it's easy for companies to sort of get lackadaisical with respect to capital allocation. So there's an opportunity for us to get involved. So if it's a, if it's a U.S. company, um, it, you know, just most of the companies end up being U.S., but we, but we look globally. In China, in, in, in India, look, I think one of the, tr one of the things that, that's coming from the coronavirus is India, for instance, has a fantastically sophisticated uh, generic drug business. Uh, there's a bunch of companies that, that, have, that, have, a, that have a lot of, brought a lot of innovation and, and brought, and brought uh, you know, pills, you know, generic pills available at very low cost to a lot of the world. But, you know, what we're, what, what I think a lot of people come to realize is having domestic capabilities, especially as a matter of national security for the U.S. is very important. So I think that you're going to see grow uh, an increase in the, the amount of sort of, uh, you know, kind of basic provider, uh, you know, generic manufacturing, if you will, you know, in the U.S., so-called API manufacturing, active pharmaceutical. I don't think that'll come into to the detriment of, 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 of India and China, but it probably will reduce their growth rates compared to what was projected before the, pan, the pandemic. 
Thank you. We have one final question, another one about your investment process as an activist in the healthcare space. So a lot of times activism within healthcare is focused on going into mature companies and trying to identify ways to improve their financial performance. How do you look at activism in, in the therapeutic space for companies with pre-approval drugs or, or uh, that are earlier on uh, in the drug development process? So, uh, you know, first of all, our, our, our type of activism is, is, is you know, kind of a little bit different than sort of the classical activism and that, you know, we're, you know, the, we look to fix the businesses and that's, that's a very hands-on thing. Um, you know, we're, we, we get involved with the companies in terms of the way that, the way the operations are being run and sort of make capital allocation more efficiently, hopefully uh, do, do, you know, kind of allocate R and D better, that type of thing. Um, and that, that can be done in the, the late stage and early stage uh, the, the, the same way. Uh, that said, we tend to be focused on um, later stage companies because we like companies where there's multiple drivers of cash flow. Um, but, you know, there are, there are many early stage companies that have, uh, frankly, the, the, you know, because the index, the, 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 the market's been up a lot recently, there have been a lot of, uh, a lot of companies perceive their cost of capital to be essentially zero. And they've been, you know, kind of spending, you know, kind of uh, less judiciously than they should be. Uh, so that I think there's an opportunity for activism there. But it, that is not the, the sort of tr the kind of classic activism of, you know, the financial type thing, which we don't, we tend not to do anyway. All right. Well, we, we want to thank Alex Dinner for joining us today on Salt Talks. Anthony, I don't know if you have any additional final thoughts. No, I mean, I, I think he wins Room Raider so far, you know, I mean, I'm impressed with all the, 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 the paneling behind you there, Alex. God bless you. Wish you uh, health and safety, and hopefully we'll get some real medical progress on this. Um, but I think it was really uh, terrific today, Alex, that you put it in historical context, what we're all going through, uh, and how we're all going to come out of it, and, and, and hopefully be just fine. But in the meantime, I wish everybody great personal safety, health, and happiness. And Alex, we'll hopefully see you soon. And I promise you, I'll be buying you martinis. You won't be drinking iced tea with me, Alex. Okay, that's my promise. That, 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 that sounds great, Anthony. Thank you very much. And, and, and thank you, John. And, and, and health and happiness to, to, to both you guys. And stay safe and appreciate that you're there.